Today we have a really special guest on the podcast, acclaimed producer David Permit. David's had such a prolific career that spans decades, including producing the 1997 box office smash hit Face Off with John Travolta and Nicolas Cage, and 2016's Hacksaw Ridge with Andrew Garfield, in which David was nominated for the Best Picture Oscar at the 2017 Academy Awards. He's produced so many other great films like Charlie Bartlett with Anton Yelchin and Robert Downey Jr. and Youth and Revolt with Michael Cera. We discussed David's origins, how he first got into producing and being mentored by Bill Sargent and then getting into producing studio films. I first met David years ago at Sundance. He's a true lover of cinema. When he's not making movies, he's watching them. And David's such a raconteur, such a great storyteller, So we were so lucky to have him sharing some incredible anecdotes throughout his career. This conversation was a real treat. Enjoy. You are now listening to the Film Situation Podcast. We're so pleased to have film producer David Perman on the Film Situation Podcast. Thank you. Nice to be here, Zev. Thanks for inviting me. Appreciate it. The pleasure is all mine, David. So I had actually read somewhere... That you were originally, I know you live out in L.A., but you were born in New York, is that right? Yeah, my family, uh, I grew up in New York. I was born in New York and raised in New York until, I think it was around seventh grade, when my dad, who was not in the motion picture industry or entertainment industry, he was in aerospace, and uh, he and his partner flipped a coin, and he was heads and his partner was tails, so our family packed up and moved to California. I mean, his company, so it was a toy cost, which partner, he and his business partner, uh, who had a company based in New York, uh, which were branching out uh, in aerospace. So my dad was heads and his partner were tails and the permit family packed up and moved to California. So even though I feel like a New Yorker at heart and I love this city and I, I love being in New York every time I'm there and I miss it and spend a lot of time there still, but I love the city. I consider myself a New Yorker, even though I, for the most part, grew up in California because I went to school out here, that is junior high, high school throughout. So I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that that much of your life has changed from a coin toss. Is that something that you often think about? Well, you know, look, you know, you can never plan on anything in life because it's the unexpected. And, uh, you know, I was always driven, though, in terms of wanting to be in the business. I wasn't sure what aspect of the business, but I had tunnel vision. I was one of the fortunate people who always knew that I was destined to be in entertainment. I grew up on television. I grew up on films. I remember the first film I saw that really impacted me in the theater. Was what was Robert that? West Side Story. Uh, I saw that as a kid, and I was just mesmerized by it. The Sharks Activated. and the Jets, yeah. As I, as I was with a lot of TV that I grew up with, you know, my generation. So, And it was network TV. There were no streamers around then, so it wasn't 500 channels. It was basically the three networks. Were you a Twilight Zone guy? Absolutely. I was a Twilight Zone guy. I love I the Twilight Zone. Meet Rod Serling early on in my career, which was a real pleasure, in a parking lot at CBS when I went over to introduce myself to him as a as a younger uh, person back then. That's pretty cool. Was he nice to you? He was very gracious, you know, but it was such a I mean, look, I I pinched myself 50 times a day knowing that I kind of touched a, a part of Hollywood at a unique time. I'll put it that way, because I've been doing it a long time. And I met a lot of people and people who are no longer with us, legends like Rod Serling. And it was a privilege and an honor. I became familiar with the show, obviously, like in reruns later on. But every year where in New York, there was uh, Channel 11. They would uh, show episodes nonstop on New Year's Day. So me and my brother, that was like our yearly tradition is just watching Twilight Zone all day long. On New I've Year's done Day. the Twilight Zone binge myself. And believe me, it's uh, it's always a treat. I, I know I had a fear of flying as a young person, even when we moved to you know California, because we go back and forth to New York uh, a bit. And every time on a plane flight, I was always looking on the wing to see if there was some uh, aberration on the wing and thinking about William Shatner and what I experienced watching that black and white Twilight Zone terrified the hell out of me. It's an iconic episode for sure. So you're not the only one. So that was going to be my next question is, so you always loved going to the movies and, you know, you love television, such as myself. What were some of those formative films that you saw in the early years? 
Well, there's there's so many of them. I guess you know I mentioned West Side Story is one of the most memorable films that I saw because I saw it very young, and I remember I saw it in the Long Island Theater that still exists there in Roslyn, Long Island, uh, near the Clock Tower, and it was a memorable experience. But a lot of my experiences are from TV as well as film. So so many over the years, it's hard to even you know qualify the films that impacted on me. There's so many of them an endless list of films that really blew my mind. I mean, and, and each in a unique way. I mean, I remember when I moved to California and one of the first films that I saw, it was Planet of the Apes, you know? And I remember where I was and where I was sitting in the theater. The theater no longer exists. It was on the corner of Wilshire Boulevard and, and uh, Beverly Drive and Beverly Hills. And the theater no longer exists today, like many theaters. I remember where I was when I saw Jaws, as I'm sure a lot of your listeners do, who maybe have seen it, if they're as old as I am, and they saw it in the theater for the first time, waiting in line at a theater in Century City. So, you know, there are those seminal moments that you see movies that you'll never forget. And of course, the classics, they, you know, you think about Hitchcock and Hitchcock's work and seeing his work and, and being a fan of his TV show as well back then, you know, was it was a big influence on me. Yeah. And I discovered, obviously, foreign films later and all kinds of great filmmakers studying film history and, you know, being a cinephile, as I think you are, too, and probably a lot of your listeners. Absolutely. That's one thing that we certainly have in common, because I feel like you're one of the few people, David, that no matter what film I reference, you've seen it most of the time. Well, you know, I like to, you know, it's hard to see everything, and especially in the world we live in now, because you need to see not only every feature film, but every new series on the horizon and all kinds of podcasts. There's so many opportunities of what to watch. And there's always something to watch. I just finished the Sundance Film Festival where I've been a staple for every year at Sundance in Toronto. Those are two festivals I never miss, like a religion. And there have been a couple of articles written about my obsessive nature with not going to parties or, and what, or dinners or schmoozing. Or watching anything, five films a day. Five, five, six sometimes. <laughs> I make it to the midnight screening. Sometimes I'm able to get six in and, and I'm there till the last day. I mean, I stay for the 10 day festival and, you know, half of Hollywood is already checked out at the beginning of the festival. And I'm, I'm just watching movies with people who love movies. And I've had films at the festival. So when you have a film, you're you know, you're there with talent, you're there with other colleagues on the film and you're working and you're doing you know, uh, obviously, if you're selling your movie for distribution. So when I don't have a film and I've had films sporadically over the years in most of the festivals. But uh, when I don't have a film, I go as a fan. And what I go for is really discovery, because to me, look, I've been doing it a long time and I'm as passionate about it as I was when I was a young teenager, enamored with uh, Hollywood and enamored with film. And, you know, so I'm as passionate as I've ever been. But to me, the real challenge for me and what I really love, it's great to work with Robert Schenken, a Pulitzer Prize winning writer who, of course, wrote Hacksaw Ridge. It's great to work with Neil Simon. You know, I've worked with some of the incredible writers, directors, talent, et cetera. But discovery to find the next generation of talent is, to me, the challenge of all of us in this business. You know, to find that gold nugget that I mine for every year at a film festival, waiting for that original voice, whether it's Sean Baker, you know, uh, with his earlier films, even before, before Tangerine. Tangerine. Yeah. yeah, even before Tangerine, he did Starlet with the, uh, Dre Hemingway. He did uh, Prince of Broadway. So, I mean, you know, I, I really revel in the biggest challenge, I think, is discovery and it's easy as a producer to make a list of, yes, I would love to work with Marty Scorsese. I would love to work with a lot of the great filmmakers today. But to me, the real challenge is to discover the next great filmmaker. Do you think all right, this this goes on to a deeper level because it's a question of what is talent? I have some really specific ideas about that. Do you think somebody's either born with talent or talent is something that's cultivated? Well, you know... First of all, experiences, you know, those people who are blessed to have some real life experiences, you know, a lot of times a writer or a filmmaker will be drawn to material that obviously they relate to or identify with. So, so much has to do with their history. You know, we're all products of our childhood. We're all people who we are today as a result of what we've experienced in life. So our taste 
is sometimes dictated by that. But there's also enlightenment. You know, there's there's always something new on the horizon that can influence us. So in answer to your question, do I think you're born with? I think there are an, there are, there is an innate talent that somebody has a a point of view or a perspective on something. You know, you see things differently, Zev, as a filmmaker than even I see as a producer. I don't have the ability and talent as a writer or director. I learned that early in my career when I was making eight millimeter films when I was a teenager. I was making films like Beautiful Dreamer with our housekeeper at the time, uh, Katie, and she was the star of the movie. So it was this, this dream she had about being the woman of the house. And my mother and her basically switched roles. So the house didn't get clean for a while because I was in production when I was 15 or however old I was when I was making these films. So I would do what a lot of filmmakers do. And today, of course, you have the benefit of an iPhone. You go off and shoot a movie like Sean Baker did on his iPhone with Tangerine. But back then, technology, it was eight millimeter and, you know, editing and what have you. So I took my eight millimeter films out to Cal Arts, California Institute of the Arts, where I thought I'd go to film school at some point when I was in high school. I took my films out there. And there was a professor. His was name- it Alexander McKendrick teaching there well, at Keller's? Yeah, Alexander yeah. McKendrick was there, absolutely, uh, and directed a film which I saw, which I always revered, which was The Man in the White Suit, which is an Ealing comedy about a, a guy who invented indestructible material at a textile company, and he thought it was the greatest invention. You couldn't, it's non-flammable, it's, uh, not, you can't get it soiled, you can't wrinkle it, and he thought it was an incredible invention you know that he came up with and of course the textile company realized they got to kill him because nobody's going to buy new materials if there's something that's totally indestructible yeah, and it's a great so film it's really brilliant alec guinness starred in it any anyway so he directed that but he was he was a professor at the time and he got to know me and you know i talked to him a little bit and then i showed him my films and he looked at my eight millimeter films a number of them and he put his arm on my shoulder, and I'll never forget. He said, son, did you ever think of being a producer instead of a director? And if you saw my 8-millimeter films, you would probably agree with Alexander McKendrick. Oh, so the, McKendrick was the person you were just going to mention? Yeah. Wow, he, he, that's he wild. Who gave me my advice that I took to heart, which is I was finding my way. I wasn't sure, was I a writer? Was I a director? Was I, what was I? I knew I wanted, I was driven absolutely driven. I mean, as a child, I don't remember awful lot about my childhood, but I remember the experiences in theaters and on television and how it impacted on me. And I was always driven. So when my dad won that towing cost to move to California, you know, when I was a young teenager in seventh grade, I figured I'm moving to Hollywood. So (laughs) thank God he won the towing cost. But uh, anyway, uh, that's amazing that you learned from Alexander McKendrick. I did not know that. I've read his book. That's how I knew that he taught at Cal Arts because he wrote I guess it's really a collection of a lot of his teachings about cinema yes. it's I think it's called on filmmaking the craft of the director and it's amazing yeah. I know that James Mangold learned from him and went to Cal yeah, Arts. there are many many uh, major filmmakers uh, who attended California's to the arts at the time but uh, I ultimately didn't go there but Roger Corman offered me a job so I was at uh, UCLA and then when I got a job with Roger Corman, I really learned the business by just getting thrown in the fire. I mean, I was a, at the time they called the, the, the job I had as a gopher, go for this and go for that. Today, it's a production assistant, a PA, but I was on a film and, you know, David, get me an Apple box. And I'm thinking, Apple box, you know, I have to go to the supermarket. What's he talking about? I mean, even, I didn't have this really lingo. I mean, I was a teenager. I really didn't know what the hell I was and it's, doing. It's way before Google. It's not like you could just Google. No, something. no, no. You don't go to computer back then. And I mean, I had a, and I was just thrown into it. There was somebody who was fortunate, he gave me a job and took a chance on a young kid running errands essentially on a film set. And it was a film called Your Three Minutes Are Up uh, with Bo Bridges and Ron Liebman so many years ago. And what happened on the next film, because I, I did a good job, I guess, and they liked me. So I went to another film, I think, that was also Roger Corman. And what happened was the second assistant cameraman got sick. The loader got sick. And they asked me if I know how to load film, you know, and change film. And, of course, I knew how to change 8 millimeter film. When I shot an 8 millimeter movie, I would take it to the drugstore and I would get the developed the film back. But... Now I'm in the dark room saying yes to everything I was told. So I said, yeah, I can do that. And I'm in the dark room, you know, changing, you know, a thousand feet magazines and 
you know, and I'm in the bag, we're on location. And, you know, Roger Corman's making movies for a very modest budget. So, and I turned the light on at the wrong time. And I'll never forget that experience. That was the most terrific experience I've had. I, I broke out in a sweat. I, I That light went on and off fast, excuse the expression, shit through a goose. I, I, that light went on and off. And I saw the thousand feet of film there exposed. Wow. And I decided, you know, wow, what am I going to do? So I figured, let me see. Maybe it went on and off so fast. I prayed. I hoped that hell that nothing happened. And the next day in dailies, which I didn't attend, but the the uh, producers did, and other people did, Roger Corman. And uh, I remember they came down, the production manager, and he said, we seem to have a problem with the canisters, you know? And I said, well, what, what do you mean? He said, well, there might be a leak in the canisters, so we need to send the canisters back and make sure. I said, okay. So I, boy, I beat that one. Oh, I thought I beat it. I thought I beat it until Roger Corman came down to the set the next day. And what they saw on dailies, evidently, were flashes and some of the footage, not all the footage, but some of the footage, there were flashes. That's why they thought there might be a, a leakage. Well, the leakage uh, came from me. The leakage was because light went on in the dark room at the wrong time. So Roger Corman comes down to talk, you know, and, uh, and Mr. Corman, and, and he looks at me. He doesn't even know my name, I don't think, at this point, certainly. And he said, I understand we had an issue with the, uh, the canisters, with uh, some of the flashing on the footage the other day and i said yeah but it's taken care of now everything's fine we have new canisters and he turned around and i well, wow, I beat that one and he turned around he pointed his finger at me he says don't turn the light on again in the dark room wow because he knew yeah he's a pretty he sharp guy I, huh he knew that i was new on the job and i was a pa who got the gig to change film and i don't know what the hell he was doing Never exposed any other film ever in my career, and I never want that job. Now I don't need that job back in <laughs> photography, but that was the scariest moment in my career. I got to tell you, I was when he said that to me. Oh my God, I could have crawled into uh, cement. I could have buried a hole in cement. That is amazing. But I survived. Yeah, I had <laughs> one time. I was I was shooting something. I mean, completely different. But I was filming something for IBM, and there was like a big time executive. That came down and he had to film this whole sort of talk that was being sent to Switzerland or something. And we filmed it and I realized, I'm like, oh my God, I didn't roll it. I didn't, I didn't record what he just did, you know? And I said to him, I said, sir, I was like, I think you did a really great job. It was, it was really good, but I, I think it would really be strong if we did another one. It's like, what, what would you think of that? He's like, Really? You think so? Yeah, I think it would be really good. And we did. Just dodged a bullet. <laughs> I bet bullets have good. Well, we dodge bullets. I mean, that's what we do. We uh, we try to do our best. But, you know, when we're thrown in the fire like that, sometimes things happen. Oh, absolutely. So I had no idea that you worked for Roger Corman. I know that a lot of people have, including Martin Scorsese, Ron Howard, James Cameron, like so many Oh, it yeah, goes on. So Jack Nicholson, uh, Peter Bogdanovich. I mean, you know, amazing career. And those of you who haven't seen the documentary, it's wonderful about Roger. And and it's a terrific documentary. I think it's called uh, The World According to Roger Corman. I Is think that, so, yeah. Yeah, really good one. Really good documentary. Saw that in Sundance. So I know that two of your earlier films that you did produce were Dragnet with Dan Aykroyd and Blind Date. Is that right? With Bruce Willis? Well, they were the first conventional films. You know, my career started somewhat unconventionally. I mean, look, I when I started telling you about my 8mm films while I was living at home as a teenager making 8mm films, on weekends, I became the publisher of Beverly Hills Map Company. So what happened was I went to a school in Beverly Hills called Rexford, which was this unique school. It was a private school. I didn't, my parents didn't know it at the time, but me and my brother were going there and, and it was like 70 kids in the whole class. So in seventh grade, I had like five students in a converted apartment in Beverly Hills. Um, and most of the kids were showbiz kids. You know, they were their 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 parents were famous and I'm like wide eyed and I can't believe it. So a friend of mine, Rick, uh, in my class asked me to come over and play tennis at his house one weekend. I went over to 601 Mountain Drive to play tennis. And after we played tennis and his older brother, my my brother was older than me, was also friendly with his older brother who had a rock and roll band at the time. But, you know, his father, I also knew of his father, but I didn't think I was going to meet him when I went over to play tennis at his house. But in the living room after the tennis game is sitting Dean Martin. So I actually met Dean Martin 
at his home with his son, Rick, Rick Martin, Ricky Martin, who was Dean's uh, younger son. And Dino, Dino had a band, Dino, Desi and Billy with Lucio Ball's son, Desi Arnaz Jr. So I went to this. It was weird coming from New York and then being kind of thrust into a school with movie star kids, you know, whose parents I knew agents, you know, I mean, major, major people or players in the industry. And I subscribed to Variety in seventh grade. I was reading Variety. I was reading that probably more studious than I was reading uh, my Spanish class. So I don't speak Spanish that well today, but I knew who was running every studio. I knew all the names. I studied it like a priest studies the Bible. So I knew who was running every studio. I knew every name. So I decided because one of the kids I was in school with, his father, I won't mention his name, but he was a senior agent, a major, major agent at William Morris. So I realized on weekends, when my family moved to California, one of the first things my dad did, like so many tourists when we first moved here, is he bought a map to the stars homes. So I decide I'm going to go in business. And I did. And I became the publisher of Beverly Hills Map Company because I published my own map. And a lot of the kids I went to school with is there on the addresses. And my friend at William Morris, he had all William Morris addresses anytime I needed somewhere somebody lived. So I made my own map, handmade. Wow. And I went into competition with this woman down the street who actually started the maps in the 30s. Her father started the movie maps in the 1930s. And she sold on... Uh, Baroda Drive, which was two blocks down from me uh, in Holmby Hills, which is right next door to Beverly Hills. And it's a long involved story, but I won't get lost in the uh, weeds of it too much. But I came home from work one day and the mats were negotiable. So I started three dollars, wind up at two or dollars like Tijuana in Beverly Hills. And I knew I got to know everybody on the corner. You know, Fred Astaire used to stop at the stop sign. I was on a great corner right on Sunset there. And they'd all know me as the kid on the corner. And it was a more innocent time then. You know, it's not like TMZ or anything like that. So, you know, Fred Astaire, Catherine Hepburn, they used to come take a shortcut from Benedict Canyon. They stopped by the stop sign, but they're turning on sunset. And they knew me as a kid on the corner. I had a director's chair and my sign. And, uh, you know, I sold maps and uh, I met my first lawyer there. He lived across the street on sunset. He was Stanley Kramer's lawyer. Sam Zagon was one of the biggest lawyers in Hollywood. He used to come over and talk to me and tell me how he used to sell newspapers in Chicago and I should keep it up. And you know, we talk show business and I got to know people sitting on a corner selling maps to the stars homes when I was 15, 16 years old. And I did it for a few years up until we had a problem because I came home from work one day and my mother said, do you have a problem now? Because we live not far from there. And my mother got a letter and a letter went out to all the residents of that area. And it was signed by somebody looking to get rid of me and Vivian, my competitor, you know, and uh, all you did was sign this and send it to the councilman. It's a long involved story, but I knew we couldn't take it sitting down. We, we, we'd be out of business. And Vivian, of course, this was her livelihood. This was her family business. Me, I was a kid just selling maps and doing very well, actually, on the corner, but meeting a lot of people at the same time. And later, later in life, when I got in the business, people would look at me and they look very familiar. You know, and I'm realizing that some of these people probably remember me as a kid on the corner, you know, when I because I got started very early in my career when I started producing by virtue of an individual I met, which I'll tell you about in a moment. But to finish off the map story, there was a a city council meeting to get rid of me and Vivian selling these maps. And I said, we can't take it sitting down. And what happened was it became a legal case. And we went to the California Supreme Court. The Supreme Court of California heard the case and they ruled in our favor, which is pretty amazing. And Lucio Ball and Groucho Marx and a lot of people came to RA. They said, look, this is part of Hollywood. It's a tradition, you know, but it was also a more innocent time back then. You know, today privacy is what it is. And it's a whole nother world today, but more innocent time. But anyway, I met a man named Bill Sargent who really changed my life. And he convinced me that anything is possible. If you want to direct, direct. If you want to produce, produce. If you want something in life, you go for it. And if you're determined uh, and you surround yourself with the right people, you could have it all. And he gave me the power of positive thinking. And he really was an influence in my life. And his name was Bill Sargent. So I read about Bill Sargent and you guys produced a film called Give Him Hell, Harry. Is that right? It was a movie that was a fluky thing. I, I 
what happened after Corman and after I, you know, worked in the business a little bit, I got a job at an agency in Beverly Hills and they represent a boutique agency. They represented just mostly actors on TV shows. And it was really just a two person office, small little boutique agency. And I said, look, I think it's about writers. I think, you know, I came to realize early, you know, I was probably at that time, I think I was 20 years old, 19, actually. And I'm I'm an agent, you know, I'm a junior agent in this agency, not knowing what I'm doing particularly, but I got this job. And I said, we got to sign with the Writers Guild because I think you need to be franchised to get scripts because I wanted to really cultivate writers. To me, that was the key to the door. That's what I wound up doing. He said, go do what you want, kid. I don't care what you do. So I went and signed with the Writers Guild and I start getting submissions and reading scripts. And one of those scripts happened to be a Mary Tyler Moore script written by this kid in Indiana. And he wrote this script on spec. And I'd call up the guy at, at Mary Tyler Moore. I don't know anybody, but I would say it fast because the name of the agency was Moss, M-O-S-S. But if you say it fast on a phone call, uh, I'm calling for uh, whoever I'm calling for. I said, it's David Permit from the Moss agency. And they thought it was the Morris agency. So it, it sounded like Morris, we, yeah. William Morris, the yeah. big agency not the Moss agency. So I got people on the phone. They get on the phone thinking I'm with William Morris. Didn't matter as long as I got him on the phone. So I get him on the phone and I convinced Ed Weinberger at MTM to read this script, even though he said, we don't set, accept unsolicited scripts, but you're an agent, so we'll read it. So they read it and they really liked it, but they said, we can't buy it. Don't have this kid come out. He was in Indiana. He was doing the weather and he was doing jokes and he sent me a reel to reel tape. And I encouraged him. I said, why don't you write an all in the family script? on spec. And I know this guy over there I did meet named Phil Mishkin. I could get it to him. And I was encouraging him. Well, lo and behold, Bill Sargent came into my life and I was with the agency for a short period of time. So I told this young guy in in Indiana doing the weather for some TV show, television station, I was always encouraging him. And he wrote the All in the Family script and they actually liked it. Phil Mishkin said, this guy's a good writer, but we can't buy unsolicited. We can't buy it. We, we have our own writers, David, but he appreciates it. So I'm encouraging this guy to write. And then I called him to say, I'm leaving the agency. And he was crushed. And I didn't know he was crushed. And his name was David Letterman. Wow. So the way yeah. I found out it was David Letterman was cut to 20 years later. I'm making a movie with Whoopi Goldberg and Frank Langella called Eddie about an obsessed fan who gets to coach the Knicks in the nosebleed section. You know, the wish fulfillment of an obsessed fan. And it was a comedy, family comedy for Disney. And we had a couple of noteworthy people making cameos in it because she was a big popular figure in New York. She got to coach the Knicks. That was a storyline. And one of the things that happened, she goes on a television show. So the TV show that Disney made arrangements for, I had nothing to do with it. They made all the arrangements. They said, look, you're going to leave the set with Whoopi and you'll go over with her with the skeleton crew, hair, makeup, and you're going to do at the end of his show a clip with him say, here's the new coach of the Knicks, Eddie, and Whoopi comes out with a jersey and the audience applause and we get what we need and we leave. You know, we're shooting in New York. So I told Whoopi about this story and that was it. I told her several weeks before we were going over to the show to do this, we're shooting the movie, we're in production. And I go over there in the afternoon with Whoopi and I'm with hair, makeup and, and wardrobe and we're in the green room and she does the bit, and I'm on. I'm watching the monitor, and we got our clip, and it's all great. And we're going to leave. We're packing up to leave, and everybody's leaving, including me. And Whoopi says, "You got to stay." I said, "I got to stay." What do you mean I got to stay? Because I told David, "You were here." I said, "David Letterman knows. He remembers me when I was 19 years old on a phone call. He never met me. I just had. I was his. I was his agent, if you want to say that. I was just this kid on the phone. What he remembered." David comes back into the green room and Andrew Gunn, who's a major producer now, but back then he was my assistant. He, he produced Corella, among other things. Anyway, he's sitting next, he's standing next to me and David Letterman, time goes by, he walks in the green room and he goes, David Permit. <laughs> I'm looking at David Letterman and I'm seeing his mouth move. I can't believe that he remembered me and he was so gracious. And what he said to me, he said, you know, when I was in Indiana doing the weather and I sent you those reel to reel tapes and you asked me to write the all the family script, you don't know what it was like to have one voice in Hollywood that encouraged me and believed in me. And he I mean, I couldn't believe what he was saying to me when I was leaving the agency. I didn't know the deep impact it had on him. And he shared it with me. And I was just so moved by that. I got to say it was such an emotional moment. And 
fortunately, I save everything because I have a storage unit with everything. And I had the reel-to-reel tapes that he sent. I had the All in the Family script and the uh, Mary Tyler Moore script, which I, I sent him copies of. And uh, But it, Bill Sargent entered my life. I just share that story because, you know, to me, discovering new talent is something that always had been ingrained in me. I couldn't afford at that time to be in business or think about being in business with some major players in the business. So it's like rubbing sticks to create fire being a producer. You better be entrepreneurial. Yeah, that is an unbelievable story. That's incredible. Getting, I, yeah. I'll cut to the chase because I have a, a capacity to talk too much. But Bill Sargent entered my life. And Bill Sargent, when he entered my life, my dad came home one night. And he says, I know a guy who's going to reunite the Beatles. Now, I'm living at home. You got to understand. My dad comes in. You met a guy in a bar. He says, getting the Beatles together. Dad, come on. You kidding me? You, uh, that's Hollywood. Somebody, and I watched the news that night, and the Beatles are meeting in Hollywood. It's on the news. Like, holy shit, where is this guy? I'm running my dad's. And I said, where's that guy you met in the bar? And he says, I don't know. His business card's here somewhere. And he gives me a business card. And it says Beverly Hills on it. And I'm thinking, well, shit, he must be legitimate. He's in Beverly Hills. That's where, you know, all these guys are. So I go to his office. I'm out of school for the summer. And I go to this guy's office. I had just done the gig at the agency. And then I meet this guy. And this guy changed my life. And the reason he changed my life, I go up to this office in Beverly Hills, in one of the old creaky buildings, the two-story buildings on Little Santa Monica, and the musty and mildew and the carpet's frayed. And I walk up and I say, is this guy here, Bill Sargent? Oh, he's at the end of the hall. So I go to the end of the hall and there's a closet. It's not even a real office, no windows, just a Xerox machine, it's utility you know, room. And this guy looks like John Goodman is sitting there behind a, a folding table, like a card table, with one phone, one ro- rotary phone, dial phone. I said, are you the guy who's getting the Beatles together? He says, goddamn right. He's from Cato, Oklahoma. I didn't know it at the time. But he tells me that he did Harlow when there were two Harlows in Hollywood being done. There was Joe Levine, the great producer, making the big version of Harlow. And there was Bill Sargent, this guy, who tells me he did a quickie version with a new video process called Electronavision. And he wrote off of Joe Levine's publicity campaign on the Harlow production that he was making, a very expensive film. And Sargent made it quick and fast, and he beat him out to the box office. And Sargent's Harlow made a fortune, and Joe Levine lost money. Wow. And then he told me he did Hamlet, that he filmed at the Lundfontein Theater in New York, videotaped it with Richard Burton, the first play to be translated to the screen, and he released it theatrically in the 60s during the Burton-Taylor eras, and he made millions. Because who is bigger than Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor? You know, nobody at that time. So he released Hamlet with Richard Burton around the country on video, transferred to film, looked like shit. But it didn't matter. He sold it, and it made a fortune. And then he told me he did the Tammy show. The Tammy Show, Teenage Music International, T-A-M-I. If you haven't seen it, you guys have to see it. Rolling Stones, James Brown, Jan and Dean, Leslie Gore, the first filmed rock show ever at the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium in the 60s. And he released it theatrically. And it's legendary. I mean, Mick Jagger didn't want to go on after James Brown because James Brown's feet were on fire. Bill Sargent. So I didn't believe any of this shit. I figured this guy's in a closet with a utility room. I mean, he's going to reunite the Beatles. This guy's snowing me. I don't believe that. And I go to the library, not the internet. I go to the library and I check him out. And Horace William Sargent III from Cato, Oklahoma. Hamlet, Harlow, The Tammy Show. Unbelievable. That is the unbelievable. Guy, I hightailed it back there and I went to work for Bill Sargent. But one of our first productions... It's a long involved story. I won't share every detail with you. But my first production with Bill was Give Him Hell Harry, as you just said. And Give Him Hell Harry was a play traveling the country. And in one night, we videotaped it at the Moore Theater in Seattle. And it cost, I think it was about 52000 including the party. So this guy in the lumber business gave Bill Sargent the money. And he basically videotaped the play in one night. So my job was to pay people a hundred bucks to go have steak dinners because I had ca- there were cameras in their seats. They came to see a play, and the play was about Harry Truman, President Truman, and the actor was brilliant. 
Steve Binder directed. He's pushing buttons backstage, camera one, camera two, you know, like an old TV show. No studio would even look at this for distribution. This is 1976. So what happened was I was president of the company. I'm 21 years old, 22 years old, and I'm president of the company. And Sargent's the head of the company, chairman of the board. We released the film ourselves because no studio would even look at it. We couldn't get past the gate guard to even look at this thing. The tape to film transfer looked like horrific. It was grainy. You couldn't see shit. And then Sergeant goes, fuck them. We'll release it ourselves. And he called Sumner Redstone and Hank Plitt and, and Salah Hassanin and all the theater owners back then. And they liked it. And they put it on some screens three weeks after it shot in one night. And I'm at the Academy Awards on the red carpet for Best Actor, James Whitmore. Gets nominated, 1976 Best Actor. A movie made in one take, one night, on video. He portrayed Harry Truman in a one-man show, which was brilliant. It was lively and funny and witty. It wasn't just a history lesson. And that picture winds up doing about $11.5 on a budget of like $60,000. That is amazing. So so, I'm, I'm like 21, 22 years old. That's what put me on the map with Bill Sargent. And then the next film, because lightning never strikes twice, but it did. One night, Long Beach Terrace Theater, one take, seven cameras, videotape, live audience. Richard Pryor. Richard Pryor, live in concert. Yeah. Picture did $32.5 million on a budget of nothing. Richard got 400000 and the film cost uh, very little and under a million with all the uh, distribution, we distributed ourselves because nobody wanted to distribute it. We called the same theater owners. We didn't get lucky with that first one. We got lightning strike twice and it did with Richard Pryor. And after that, Ray Stark called me up and that's when I made my first studio deal and started making movies conventionally, as you said, more conventional narrative movies, not just capturing special events and uh, the concerts. By the way, I, I just want to say, because I have a lot of friends that are comedians and that Richard Pryor film that you made that was that's legendary amongst comics well it is and it it really stands the test of time we just got lucky we were guys who sergeant and and i found a couple of guys to finance it and richard needed money because i tried to get richard to do it for a number of years actually and he had turned it down he wasn't interested keep in mind this is 79 but prior to 79, even after Give Him Hell Harry is what paved the way for us to have the opportunity to get Richard Pryor made. I was president of the company uh, called Theater Television Corporation and special event entertainment, the sergeant's companies. Uh, but we we wound up having great success with that. And that's what opened the door for me for Dragnet, as you just said earlier, about an hour ago. I get carried away with my stories, but I've met some colorful people in my life. I can tell you that. Well, that's okay, David, because this, in general, this is a long form podcast, so that's okay. I know you're on a time limit, but yeah, that's but right. but no, no problem on 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 my side. But right. you asked me a question earlier, Zev, and I'll answer it now rather than get kind of long winded. I wanted to share with you a little about my earlier experiences because it informs you a little about who I am and my kind of trajectory. But I was sitting at home watching surfing television surfing watching an old procedural police drama that jack webb created dragnet you know and black and white and then i'm surfing two channels away is dan Aykroyd. the next day i'm on the phone with bernie grillstein i have an idea that's all i have an idea i want to take dragnet and translate it to the big screen as a comedy not as a drama not as a police police procedural drama but as a comedy and Dan Aykroyd and I went into the head of the studio, Frank Price, and it was the shortest pitch in movie history because we didn't say anything. Dan and I looked at each other. We said, dumb, da-dum, dumb. And Frank got it. And they owned it. I had no ownership. I had nothing. I just, and the guy came up with a good idea. But they honored that. And a year later, we made one of the top 10 movies of the year at 1987, Dragnet with Tom Hanks and Dan Aykroyd that Tom Mankiewicz directed. And then after that, it was Blind Date which I'm reading about Bruce Willis now, of course, and uh, thinking about this was Bruce's, you know, first really starring role with Kim Bassinger with Blake Edwards. And that happened as a result of me being at the right time with uh, with a script uh, called Blind Date as a result of the writer uh, who actually talked to me about an experience about this real life blind date. And I said, everybody understands. Everybody's been there before. And it kind of was hangover 
on a blind date, if you will. You know, one night, the ticking clock of a date that goes apeshit. Had Bruce Willis already done Moonlighting at that point? Yes, or? it was off of Moonlighting and before Die Hard. Die Hard became his next movie. It's wow. funny because, you know, sometimes you work with actors. You know, I did this movie, Charlie Bartlett, with Anton Yeltsin, God bless his soul, yeah. too. Rest um, in peace to him. Great actor. Made. And yeah, great actor. And Robert Downey was in the movie. And of course, it was a movie that it was a movie directly preceded his next big X-Men movie. So Robert obviously exploded after we did Charlie Bartlett together. Yeah. So I was delighted that he was in it. So I definitely want to get to uh, Face Off because that is are you aware of how often that movie comes up in conversations like that definitely put its thumbprint on cinema well thank you i appreciate it you know and it starts with mike werb and mike cleary and it starts with me you know having read this material and it's sitting on a shelf it's sitting on a shelf the script is sitting on a shelf collecting dust at warner brothers with another producer uh whose name i won't mention joel silver no i didn't say that um <laughs> Uh, but, uh, you know, major producer. And but, you know, it was a back burner project. It was a project that was really dormant. There was not any activity on it. And I remember talking to Mike and Mike, Mike Werb and Mike Cleary, who wrote the script, asking them, uh, inquiring whether there's a way that I could talk to Joel or if I could make work something out. And they really got excited because they had found out that it, it reverted to them because of the inactivity on the script. So, you know, you talk about timing and luck does play a factor being at the right place at the right time. So they told me the project reverts to them uh, because of the inactivity clause with the Writers Guild. And I think it was something like, I can't remember exactly, 37, 38 days. And I remember my office, I'm crossing out the days like I'm in prison, you know, the day it went in turnaround. And the day it went in turnaround, uh, we acquired the rights. And it was a very short fuse. For a lot of money that we put up for an option because William Morris represented the, the guys and they knew I was salivating. But, you know, the concept, just hearing about it, two guys switch faces. Oh, my God. You know what? A, I'm, I, I've done a lot of movies, you know, but and all genres. But I think about movies that have a hook, you know, and the ones that really have, are, there's all kinds of movies. And my taste is very eclectic all over the place. When you look at my filmography, you scratch your head and go, God, what's this guy thinking? But one of the things that the films have in common, I realized, is a hook. You know, Dragnet, taking an old familiar franchise before anybody really had done that before, out of the vaults and refurbishing it as a comedy, a great hook, dump, da dump, dump. Blind date, great hook, one night on a date that goes batshit. Uh, face off, what a great hook. Hacksaw Ridge. I wasn't looking to do a war movie, but I met a guy I met. I had the privilege of meeting Desmond Doss, a man who never touched a gun. That's a, a unique perspective. How do you do better than Spielberg and John Ford in a great war movies in cinema history? Well, you do it when you can tell it through a different prism in a different way that's been done before. A great hook, a man who never touches a gun. So I look back at a lot of the films that I've made and obviously face off that caught my attention immediately. I was just going to say, I've always wished I could be a, a fly on the wall when that movie was being pitched. It was like, I have a great idea. These two guys are switching faces. <laughs> like what were the reactions? Like how was, how was the pitch to that? The pitch was, I remember I was, I, I mean, that was a tough one. The pitch I thought always went great, but you know, keep in mind, I didn't have just a pitch. I had a script that accompanied the pitch. And even though the script went through a little bit of a transformation, but the basic concept was the concept and it was passed on everywhere. I have a file cabinet with passes. There's not a studio that didn't pass on it, including Paramount originally. So how do you turn a no into a yes? I mean, look, part of what we all do is in a sea of no's, we're looking for the one yes. I mean, that's life. You know, you got, I mean, somebody asked me to define what, what the essence of a producer, the essence of a producer is somebody impervious to rejection, but we're all impervious to rejection in life. I mean, so anyway, uh, getting back to uh, face off. So I love the concept the moment I heard it and then reading what Mike and Mike created, it just, I was over the moon. The reason it was a no that became a yes was in fact, John Woo. 
you know, uh, John Woo, who I had seen hard boiled. I've been a big fan of his and he did the what, killer. And what, yeah, I mean, you know, just incredible filmmaker. And he was going to, and that's what really charged the studio, his vision. And they were making the movie with him. We were going to make the movie and it was going to be, you know, his first film in America. But ultimately, uh, what happened was Fox got the drop on us and Broken Arrow was green lit. So we wound up without John Woo with another director and we went through a little bit of a development process. But ultimately, like everything else, good, good things happen to those who wait. So even though we went through a little bit of a process with another filmmaker, John had now finished Broken Arrow and we wound up going back to him. And that's how it all kind of coalesced finally at Paramount with John Woo. But and 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 John and Nick, I mean, you know, look, things happen when they're meant to happen, and and that was seamless casting. I mean, they studied each each other's nuances and details, and it was just so much fun to watch them morph into the other character. I mean, first of all, you have an actor, you know, playing both roles. So an actor gets to play two roles in a movie it doesn't happen that often. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like character wise, there's a lot of nuances there because they're each credited as two separate characters. Absolutely. Yeah. They are. And, 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 you know, and, but getting back to your initial question in the pitch, everybody turned it down. They go, permit, this could be unintentionally ridiculous. You know, you got two guys. I said, well, you know, I know, but Carl Reiner's not directing it. It's a, you know, this is a, you have to understand the tone. And it's also a film. And, and that's the balance of that film, which John Wu achieved so brilliantly with the actors, it doesn't take itself seriously. It winks at the camera, you know, and the humor of it is really ingrained in the film. So, you know, look, That's it's true. a film I'm, I'm enormously proud of. I really, uh, I revel in its incredible success. It's over 20 years. I was in Shanghai. I was a jury in the Shanghai Film Festival. Nick was over there celebrating. I think at the time it was 20 years. So it was about four years ago, I guess before obviously before the pandemic but um you know now everything old is new again in hollywood so and this gets back to sundance you know everybody looks at me like i'm nuts you know seeing 60 movies at sundance and every short film that we see and everything but one night i'm rolling out of a midnight screening at the library at two o'clock in the morning i run into a guy who he's a filmmaker and i know his films and he evidently knew one of mine and he said face off is one of his favorite films and inspired him so when i sold paramount on doing face off naturally i went to him to direct and adam wingard developed the sequel to face off which is incredible and john and nick are in the they're in the script they're back caster troy didn't die i mean i gotta tell you this script is crazy so it's on you know hopefully the fast track at paramount at this point with uh, adam wingard's script i love the guest which which adam directed i would love to see a face off too as most people well, would, I feel like. I hope so. But, you know, my fear of it always was, well, we could screw it up a million ways. You know, when you try to put that stamp on something, you want to kind of capture, you know, the essence of that original movie is kind of a challenge. But I think Adam, Adam's uh, really shepherded a wonderful script through, and I'm, I'm very excited about where we're at with it. So we'll see. It looks very promising. I think I was reading up on the fact that the scene in the film of Face Off where Over the Rainbow was playing, uh, that was John Woo's idea, not part of the original script. Was that right? Yeah. John Woo came up with that. John, you know, has a great ear for music. He's a, he loves music, obviously, as most of us do. But he, that was just the brilliance of John Woo, you know, in addition to the the cinematic look of that film, you know. I mean, the, the color palette, the slow motion. I mean, you know, the, I mean, nobody shoots action like John Woo. And man, he just captured it. Lightning in a bottle, you know. It, it was really so was. And all those elements just came together at that time. And with the casting, I mean, we just, uh, just seamless. I remember really seamless. I saw it when I was 15 years old at the Cross County Movie Theater in Yonkers, like packed out, packed, sold out screening, like. Hundreds of people there, and it was just a cinematic experience. I was like, "Wow, this is incredible!" <laughs> yeah, uh, well, it's good to hear. I'm glad. Uh, I'm glad to know that we made money off of you, Zeb. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah. No, I'm just saying. You know, it's great when you you can do something that's as memorable as that film, and it also is a huge success around the world. You know, and it sells a lot of popcorn. 
and entertains a lot of people. But I think one of the things that I'm endeavoring to do, and Hacksaw Ridge obviously speaks to this, which is I often quote Harry Warner. You know, Harry Warner was one of the four Warner brothers founding the studio, and Jack Warner was a shit. Nobody liked him. Sorry if any of his relatives are listening, but he wasn't terribly liked. He only cared about selling popcorn and commerce. But but Harry Warner felt the power of what we do. He felt had to do three things as he referred to the three E's, educate, enlighten, and entertain. And not every film does that, but certainly films for me like Hacksaw Ridge, cable movie I made called Brez for Bobby with Sigourney Weaver speaks to that for me about a teenage boy who committed suicide based on a true story as a result of his sexuality being gay. Uh, we were nominated and numerous awards and accolades, Emmy nominations, what have you, um, a film I'm very proud of. We did the investigation. You know, I, I felt like nobody read the Mueller report politically when, you know, Robert Mueller did his report, uh, the density of that report. So I called Robert Schenken and with David Bender, who came up with the idea with me, we decided to do the Mueller report reading as a nonprofit live stream reading. It can be accessed online now. It's called The Investigation of Searching the Truth in 10 Acts. And Annette Benning is the narrator who weaves through the 10 counts of obstruction. Not one word was changed from the Mueller report on the 10 counts of obstruction. But listen, right now, the Mueller report so in the rearview mirror with the, the shit storm that has happened between then and now. But at the time, you know, I thought it was uh, the right thing to do. And I think hopefully. Uh, you know, educate, enlighten, and entertain. We had John Lithgow, an incredible cavalcade of great stars who contributed towards it. It was a nonprofit reading in New York one night, uh, captured in front of the spontaneity and immediacy of a live audience, like I had done years ago with Richard Pryor and, and, and Gim Mel Harry for a uh, political reason for people to understand the concept of what the Mueller report was about. Going back to your earlier comment, I completely agree about i haven't heard the three e's before but that's something that i've thought about that yeah and then by the way Zef, not every film i mean look i'm a huge fan of comedy i've made quite a few comedies in my career and hope to do more and there's nothing wrong with doing check your brain in at the box office and go see a comedy and just get away from the horrors of the life and the world what we're living through right now yeah I'm out of a pandemic, which we're not out of completely, obviously, in the world. But uh, the, the horrors of the news every night, it's devastation. I know, it is. There is. And that's why film is such an important medium, because I think it, it does have that power to be sort of an empathy machine. For example, yeah, so, like you referenced your film, Prayers for Bobby, Bobby, Yeah, that, you know, it's a powerful film. Like on paper, I might not empathize with Bobby, but from watching that film, I found it to be a really empathetic Sort of well, story. that was brought to me by colleagues of mine, Dan Sladek and Chris Taft. And when they told me about the story and I read the book, which it's based on, it took 16 years to get it made. It took a long journey to get that made. Maybe it wasn't quite 16. I lost track of time, but it was a long time. Not a a week that goes by that we don't get letters around the world from teenage kids or parents, you know, and, and, and suicide is a big issue in that community. Can you hold one second? Yeah, yeah, sure. I got to get this home. Of course. So I want, I definitely want to discuss Hacksaw Ridge. I was actually following along with that story before it got made as far as just from knowing you. I know it was on your IMDb and it was actually called The Conscientious Objector, right? Before it was called Hacksaw Ridge. Yeah. Yes. How did Mel Gibson get involved? What happened was I'm on the set at Disney and I meet, somebody comes up to me on the set and they said, they met this guy and he thought he has a good idea for a movie that this guy lived this life. And I said, what's the story? And he told me on the set, I'm shooting a movie. And he, he said to me, he never touched a gun. I said, there's no way that's true. I mean, how does a medic not have a gun to protect himself and the other men on the front lines, the bloodiest battle in Okinawa? I mean, the army wouldn't allow that. It didn't seem right to me. I couldn't believe that story. And of course, I found out it was true. Anyway, long and short of it is I, I went knocking on Desmond Doss's door to find out that he had absolutely no interest in Hollywood. He had no interest in his story being told as a movie. Not only was I not the first person there, but the first person to want to tell his story was Daryl Zanuck, the founder of 20th Century Fox before I was ever around. So he had Hollywood at his doorstep. But he had he was a very humble, modest man, and he never wanted to exploit his story. A very religious, devoutly religious man, but he had no interest in exploiting his story. He felt uncomfortable with that. And 
So what happened was over time, Terry Benedict was somebody I had met through Desmond. We tried to convince him to go ahead with this project with us. This is before any script uh, existed, just on the basis of his true story. And he never really wanted to do that. And it was over many, many, many months. I'm uh, coming up to a year, I guess. And ultimately, he left it up to the church to decide. And so he was a Seventh-day Adventist member, and we negotiated with the Seventh-day Adventist church through Terry Benedict. And Terry Benedict was a member of the church, so he felt more comfortable. The church was very concerned about how the religious side of the story was going to be portrayed. So we made them feel comfortable by virtue of Terry Benedict coming on board to produce it with me, which he did. So Robert Schenken got involved. Bill Mechanic produced it with me. Bill had just left the chairmanship of Fox and was putting together money to finance films. And even though that never fully materialized, we ultimately developed it at Walden. And Robert Schenken is who we brought on board to write the script. So in answer to your question on Mel Gibson, the studio said, you have a greenlit picture, which is what we live for those words, right? But... It wasn't green lit because it was only green lit with two caveats. What are the caveats? Well, one caveat was we're going to co-finance it. So we'll come up with half the budget. Not a problem. We'll find the other half. What's the other issue? They said it can only be PG-13. Well, that would mean homogenizing the script, obviously. And the horrors of the war were inherent to the thematic of the material. So I, I, I said, look... Um, We'll get your money back on turnaround. And that's ultimately what happened because the studio had an edict at that point in time where they only wanted to do a film as a PG-13 movie. And I, I knew it couldn't be done for that. And then we decided that Bill and I went with the, Mel Gibson and every studio turned it down and nobody wanted to do it. And Mel, as you know, had been blacklisted. Um, nobody wanted to make the film with him. So we totally financed the film independently. And even the PNA was independent with wow. Lionsgate. I mean, all the executive producers on the film were contributing towards the budget on the film. And fortunately, the fine citizens of Australia contributed 42% of the budget shooting the entire movie in Australia. Oh, that makes sense. So that's why Teresa Palmer, there's a bunch of Australians. Uh, everybody, the only Yanks on the film were me, uh, Bill, obviously, uh, Andrew, and Vince Vaughn. Everybody else was Aussie. Including, you know, Mel, even though he was born in New York, he was What about Sam Boston. Worthington? He's Australian as well? Aussie, all, everybody. Wow. The entire cast. I mean, we had such a gold mine of actors over in Australia, which is great, cool. And and below the line, everybody told me I never shot in Australia. Said, it's going to be the best experience in your career. And they were right. It was an incredible experience. And Mel, I've talked to everybody who worked with Mel prior to that because I'd never worked with Mel. I settled with him on a red carpet. Uh, we shook his hand. I didn't really know Mel. But we got to know one another, and uh, and he was amazing. Uh, he's obviously one of the, a world class filmmaker, and it happened at the right time. The film turned out amazing. Just I'm funny. very proud of it, and, and fortunately, unfortunately, Desmond passed away by the time we finished the film. His son was there with us at the premiere, and it was it was too bad that Desmond couldn't have seen the final picture. But his legacy, you know, so. Again, educate, enlighten, and entertain. Obviously, that film checks a lot checks a lot of boxes. I, I really like how you guys included that documentary portion in the end because my first thought when I was watching the film was kind of yeah. your first inclination earlier was like, is this true? Like, I loved the film, and I was yeah. like, wow, is this kind of exaggerated of how many people he's seen? You have to be reminded at the end, Zev, exactly. That's yeah. why, and Terry Benedict, who I mentioned to you, who produced it with me and was with me at the Oscars sitting next to me, Terry, because he was the conduit to Desmond, he's the one who really got the church and Desmond to agree to give us the rights. So Terry was instrumental in all of this. Terry shot a documentary with Desmond and went to Okinawa with some of the surviving men while we were developing the script with Shankin, and that's the footage you saw that we decided to lay on the end because Mel said, we got to make people know that this is actually true. This guy like doesn't walk on water, but he's a real guy and these things actually happen. So the mud in the eyes and all the other things that we've seen dramatized, we now see Desmond at the end, we get to meet the man. Not the first time that's been employed with a true story, but it was needed in this movie to really emphasize the fact that this is actually a real story. Yeah, it was it was it was incredible. 
One question that I do have in general is when there's several producers on a film like that, like let's say there's there's you, there's Bill Mechanic, how are the roles sort of divvied up of who does what on that sort of film? You know, creatively, we both contribute in every way. Business-wise, you know, I must say Bill, you know, was instrumental in some of that aspect of it, as was I with Lionsgate and the distribution of it and the release of it and the marketing. So it was really, you know, both of us contributed to it. The, the principal producers were Bill and I. The All the other producers on it, uh, Terry Benedict obviously was key to the door of the development of it, of get, getting me the rights to Desmond's story through the church. And a lot of the other producers were financiers, executive producers, et cetera. But, you know, look, it takes a village, as you know. And I know uh, an average movie audience, they look at all these credits. What the hell is a producer? Who, who is that really guy does the work? You know, the producer's the first guy on and the last guy off. So, you know, from the early stages of inception, the rights, development, shepherding all these scripts over time, this was a 16-year endeavor. This took 16 years to get made. So this was not like lightning in a bottle, like write the script and make the movie. You know, this script went through a whole process. There's so much I'm leaving out. Right, right, right. And and obviously... I mean, it came out fantastic. You were nominated for an Academy Award. I was rooting for you, David. I saw you there at the Oscars. Uh, as far as I was watching my it on TV, father were rooting for me. Yeah. You know, somebody asked me to buy my speech ready. I said I wrote my speech when I'm 15. It's in my pocket. What do you mean? I have a speech <laughs> ready? I'm ready to read it, but unfortunately, I didn't get to read it. Uh, Moonlight. Somebody, you know, it's that, and of course, it's that memorable Oscar, you know, moment where Warren Beatty looks a little confused. Because he's reading the card, and he hands it to Faye Dunaway, if you recall. And La La Land was announced the winner by Faye, only to come to realize it wasn't that. Somebody commented me that night. I thought it was funny, pretty funny. They said, "Permit, you're probably the only person who's ever lost the Oscar twice in one night." <laughs> I lost the La La Land, and then I lost the the the, the, the Moonlight, oh. but. And and now I'll reveal much more than you want to know about me, probably, or much more that I should reveal. But when Warren Beatty looked confused, and I'm sitting there in the sixth row, right? I'm looking at him, and I know something's up, but I know exactly what it is. We had won two Oscars out of the six. And I know it's a long shot. We were a long shot to win. You know, I figured it was going to be one of the other films, but you never know. And we're all dreamers, right? So I'm sitting there, and Warren looks confused. So then when he handed the card to Faye, I know what happened the moment he looked confused. He was confused because he saw Axel Ridges on the card, you know, the long shot. So I'm actually starting to get up, okay? I'm leaning forward in my seat to get up. And uh, my partner puts his arm on my shoulder and pulls me back down to reality. So I reveal a lot more about myself than I probably should, but whatever. It was kind of, it was just that moment, that millisecond that I won the Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully well, I'll get yeah, back to hopefully, the hopefully you'll get there sooner than later. Yeah. So wrapping this up. Yes. We ask each guest to share two of their favorite movie scenes. David had shared a scene from The Godfather, which I love The Godfather. Godfather Part 2 is my favorite film of all time, but you, you're referencing a film from Part 1. Also yeah. amazing. Yeah, Michael trying to get the gun in the bathroom, the table, the intensity. I look, you say, you, you say, when you ask me that question, it's like, oh. It's a difficult, I know, I know. It's a difficult question for each thing, but I think it's an important one because part of this podcast is about inspiring people to watch other films as well and you know well, the classic movies i'm sure a lot of your listeners have seen yeah if so. you if you haven't watched the godfather what are you doing listening to this podcast i always yeah, yeah. <laughs> or, or, or being there for that matter being I there i actually okay so the godfather just quick question about that did you see it in the theater when it came out when oh, you absolutely were, I saw it in the theater. that must have been amazing yeah them seeing I mean, that you know, I, I mean i see movies in theaters now i, I, I go to you know amc i mean i'm seeing movies all the time in theaters when I can during COVID, obviously I did the virtual festivals, but, uh, and I could cover more territory virtually, obviously than schlepping around the snow from theater to theater and Sundance, but go ahead. Yeah. So being there, so I also, saw it so theater. 
Being There is actually a film, shout out to my friend Daniel Lear, who put me onto that film. I was familiar with the film from just knowing about Hal Ashby, but he was, when I built my home theater in my home over here, uh, my friend Daniel said, you have to watch Being There. You've never seen that before? He's like, that should be one of the first movies you watch. Now, the reason I, I talked about that film right out, because it's the relevance, you know, it's such a prescient film. It's so much about the world today. And, oh my God, Peter Sellers, it walks on water. I mean, at the end, the ending, Hal Ashby. I mean, you know, you're talking about brilliant, brilliant writing. I mean, I mean, Dog Day Afternoon, I, I, you know, the floodgate of films, when you say a question like that, it's like the images of so many movies come to my head. I know. Ed Meyers movie over here, he's sitting here waiting. For, for, hey, Adam, come here for a second. I have to, you have to ask Adam that question, if you would, just because you'll, you'll thank me for this. So, Adam? That's the question. So, the question Adam, is, I ask each guest on the podcast, what are two of their favorite movie scenes from any two films of all time? And... I would say it doesn't have to be an absolute because there's so many, especially for a filmmaker, film lover. Yeah. I love the end of Unforgiven when uh, Eastwood tells him if they don't give Matt a proper burial, he'll come back and kill every last That's one. That's great. That's so good. It. Yeah. That is, that. that is amazing. Yeah. I love yeah. Eastwood. I'm an Eastwood fan. So. Yeah, me too. But the next film, Snack Shack, you got to see it. Check it out. It came from his soul. Writer, director. Yeah, summer of '91 for me. Summer of '91, so. and it's the, the producer is uh, Ryan Ryan Johnson, who you know. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm wearing a T Street hat. T Street. Oh, nice, amazing. Yeah, and he's just finishing the film, and yeah, got two actors in it who are gonna. You're gonna hear about these actors. Well, you already heard about Gabriel, having seen him playing the young Spielberg in Fablemans, but uh, Connor Sherry stars opposite him, and it's a two-hander. It's a coming-of-age story, very personal to Adam. Yeah. Very personal, and they're a duo, so it's like creating a duo. Yeah, we were just talking about the Fable Men's on a previous episode of the podcast that we did with Severine Rice, uh, who's a filmmaker that I met her at a film festival, and she wanted to talk about a scene from the Fable Men's. But I love spoiler alert the ending where he meets John Ford, and it played by David Lynch. That was unbelievable. That was was great. Yeah, it was great. I'd probably say the other thing I'd probably throw out would probably be a shout to Eraserhead. Would probably be oh, Eraserhead, yeah, also an incredible film. Oh my God. All right, no, nice talking to you, Zeb. So, thank David, you. thank you so much for being on the podcast. Really appreciate you being so gracious with your time and uh, sharing your stories. Great, Zev. Well, thank you. Good work, and I appreciate it. And we'll talk soon for sure. Absolutely. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to the Film Situation Podcast. 